please be seated and uh, take up Colossians. It would be great to, to read Colossians once or twice, uh, maybe in the evening at home. It's a short book, uh, but do take up the Bible and turn to Colossians right now as we begin the series. Written, chapter 1, verse 1, by Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now, Paul has every reason not to co-author this letter, and the Colossians have every reason not to read it. They don't know Paul. He's never been there. Verse 7 says that they learned the gospel from Epaphras. So they don't know Paul, and if they know of Paul, they will know that he was a complete disgrace, an absolute scumbag. First Timothy 1.15, Paul describes himself as the worst sinner in the whole world, the, the foremost sinner ever to walk the earth. And the book of Acts, chapter 9, explains that before his conversion to Christianity, he murdered the disciples of the Lord. Galatians, chapter 1, Paul, again, writing of himself, says, "'You have heard of my former life in Judaism. It was notorious. How I persecuted the church of God violently.'" and destroyed it. When Christ confronts Paul at his conversion, he, he, he says, Paul, why, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus views uh, Paul's attack on the church as an attack on himself as Paul sought to eradicate Christianity. So Paul, with this background, these antecedents of criminality and hatred, he has every reason to say to these guys, you don't know me, we've never met, but if you know of me, if you know my past, you must surely be aware that I can do nothing for you. But instead of that, what he says is this grace to you and peace from God our Father. Colossians is a message of grace, a message that says Regardless of your past and whatever it is that characterized your former life, you can have a new one. It is by grace that Paul goes from persecutor to proclaimer, seeking now to advance the gospel that he once sought to stamp out. It is by grace that Paul dares to be called an apostle, one sent out by Christ himself. It is by grace also that Paul can write to this church and describe them as saints. See that there in verse 2. Very high status indeed to be a saint. The dictionary defines saints as certain persons of exceptional holiness of life, formally recognized as such by the church. And of course, some saints are very famous people, others less so. There is a church in Springdale called St. Alphonsus, Bishop Doctor. don't know if you know that particular church, very strange name. I don't know if Bishop Doctor is a sort of double-barrel hyphenated last name or, or, or what. Never heard of the bloke, don't know anything about him at all. What I do know about St. Alphonsus, Bishop Doctor, is that every single time I take my dog rugby to the groomers and we pass that church, he growls. <laughs> So I'm speculating he was not a dog person. We, we think of saints as very special people. 
don't we? Very important people, a, a handful of super-Christians who make it to the church calendar and get their name above the door like a named partner in a law firm. But that is not how God thinks of the saints. That is not a biblical definition of sainthood. Because this book of Colossians is written to an entire city of saints. And we only know the names of four of them. But every single one of them, reading this letter, receiving it alive, is described as a saint. Saint just means Christian. Every single Christian is a saint. Anyone can be a saint. It means to be set apart. It means to be made holy. It means to be sanctified. It means to be changed. We're all all of those things if we're in Christ Jesus. Anyone can be a saint. And It is not by exceptional works or holiness of life that one is promoted up to being a saint, that one goes from sinner to saint. It is by grace alone. That's how you become one. Now, scholars, they're not quite certain exactly how to translate the word saint here in this section of Scripture. The NIV, New International Version, thinks it's an adjective describing the holiness of how people now live, the ESV thinks it's a noun. They are holy in who they now are. The the NLT just draws a picture, I think. (laughs) Got to be um, a little bit careful with that one because my wife and my son both absolutely love the the New Living Translation. I don't want to offend you, but Robert also loves it, and so I thought I'd better take the risk. (laughs) Adjective, noun, picture. It's all three, actually, uh, I think here. Saints, you have been called to live out who you are on display for all to see. Adjective, noun, and picture. Saints, you're supposed to be on display in who you are and what you do. And the book of of Colossians says repeatedly that this concept of of identity is heavily bound up with the implication of of what you're going to do. Who you are will manifest in what you do. Belief and behavior, identity and status and and action will all be part of the same story. Christians get agitated when I say things like this. When I say you're a saint and now you need to behave in a saintly way, we get a little bit agy, don't we? (laughs) What do you mean I'm a saint? I've not heard this before. This is weird. Don't talk that way. Uh, We often, I think, as Christians, like to look up to other people. We like saints. We like putting people on a pedestal so that they can be special and holy for us. (laughs) They can get martyred, all right? I'll just watch and pay my tithe. (laughs) That's what we like as Christians. We love to put people up on a pedestal and call them the saints and put their name above the door because it gets us off the hook. That is fallen thinking. That is sub-biblical thinking. That is not Christian thinking at all. That is an excuse not to grow in the likeness of Christ. Note what Paul says to the saints. They're alive, they're reading it, and there's loads of them. And faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. A couple of things here. Spiritually, number one, they are in Christ. This is now their primary identity. Being a saint alive is now the number one thing that defines them. Physically, they are still in their old city. They're still at Colossae, 
but that is now their secondary identity. First and foremost, they're in Christ. Secondly, they live in that place. It means that the things that used to define them still do, but now in a lesser sense. Old city affiliations, Liverpool Football Club, the Pittsburgh Steelers, they become secondary defining things. Uh, Even Manchester United fans, even Baltimore Ravens can become saints. Note I say can be, all right? Probably they're not, but they could be. They could repent, and then they could support the same teams as I do. Note the family language here. Number one, they're saints. Number two, they're at Colossae. Number three, they're all there together. This is to the faithful brothers. It implies sisters as well, this, this word in the original Greek, brothers. We often just translate brothers and sisters because it makes more sense to us in uh, sort of modern language. But what it means is that we all find our identity together, irrespective of our differences. All of our differences, even something as enormously different as male and female, is, is overwhelmed in Christ, says Paul numerous times in his letters. We are in Christ, number one. We're at Fox Chapel, number two. And we belong together, number three, all things that are true about us. And sometimes I meet a Christian, and they say, oh, well, I'm a Christian too. And, and, and I say to them, well, where do you go to church? And they say, well, I don't. I worship in the car. You know, I I worship at home. I commune with God in nature. The dog park is my church. I say, well, that's great because it's really close to to my church. So you don't have very far to go. Come and join us. About four times a year, a dog just comes in, doesn't it? You know, into church. So that's a great way to evangelize. It's not really what Paul's talking about, though. Uh, It is great. If you you like praying as you're out for a walk, that's awesome. Um, I, I pray mowing the lawn. That's what I do. I start off self-righteous by the pine tree, and normally I repent by the trampoline. It's all good stuff, but it's not what God intends. Not an individualistic, sort of pietistic thing in our heads. God intends us rather to be together in Christ at Fox Chapel, at our church, whichever one may be our church. We belong together. Now, obviously, not everyone listening to this sermon is actually physically here right now because there's a recorder there, and we're going to put it online. And many people listen when they're traveling. They catch up with sermons they've missed, or if they move away, they augment the teaching in their church with with this one if it helps. We had 646 plays of our sermon podcast in the last three months of the year. So if you're listening online, hello, chaps. I want you to know that he's called you to be saints where you are today. That means in Christ at Charlotte, uh, in Christ at Boston, in Christ at Austin, uh, even in Christ at Camelford in Cornwall, UK. Hello, Dad. (laughs) He called me yesterday. He said, what will the sermon be about? I said, what? I couldn't tell you. Now you know, Dad. Uh, Bizarrely, uh, because we know exactly where people are due to the amazingness of the internet. We know where they are, we know how old they are, we know what devices they're on, what operating system they use, how long they listen, everything. Uh, Bizarrely, quite a few people seem to be interested in our website from Russia for some reason. So, uh, comrades, I want to say to you, uh, sneakily evangelizing the Eastern Bloc, one website hack at a time. And uh, if if you're really listening in, you know, for the word, I do apologize for that slur. 
Uh, fundamentally, wherever I go, I am in Christ. If, if I travel, I'm in Christ. If I move, I'm in Christ. For Paul, our identity in Christ overwhelms all of our other identities, jobs, nationalities. I am not Saint Alex, bishop, doctor. I'm not that English pastor. I am Saint Alex in Christ. That is my ID, my new ID in Christ. And my new identity in Christ overwhelms everything, male, female, football teams, cities, nationalities, and above all, it overwhelms my old identity in sin. I was in sin. I was characterized by my sin. Now I am a saint characterized by the holiness of Jesus Christ. I still mess up, but my identity has changed. That verse 5, you see it right there, it gives us hope. In fact, it's not our hope that Paul is talking about now. It's not a, a sort of warm feeling and fingers crossed kind of a thing. It, note the article, note the the, not the band the the, note the the, the article there. This is a noun. It is the hope that Paul is talking about. It is the thing. It is an object. It is an expectant, eternal, well-founded, concrete thing that Paul has in mind. The hope laid up for you in heaven. Now we've called the series Up. This is one of Bridget's best graphics. If you'd seen her tearing her hair out on Wednesday, trying to get the arrow to sink into the tree, uh, you'd have known uh, how much work went into this simple image. Uh, There are many, many reasons why we've called the series Up and chosen this particular graphic. Uh, Here's the first one. Every single thing from here on in the book of Colossians, comes in the context of up, in the context of the hope laid up for us in heaven, provided for us, waiting for us. Everything that he says from henceforward will be viewed through the lens of up. So look up. Be focused up. Be all about up. Whatever you face, Here and now, know that it is overwhelmed by something yet more up. What saints we buried in this church last year who who faced suffering and loss and pain with hope because of up. You know, I mean, Carl and Jerry who, 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 who wept and read scripture in their dying days with a sense of hope because because they knew what was laid up for them in heaven, what was provided and waiting and was so near. They were up. My friend John died uh, six years ago of ALS, and um, the last word he said before being robbed uh, of speech by that dreadful thing uh, was, was the word hope. He just said the word hope. That was the last thing he said. I, I don't want to be like him. I want to be like John and and Carl and Jerry and folks like that. I want to be so focused on the hope that is laid up for me that it overwhelms all earthly trouble. Chapter 3, verse 2, and we'll get to it in a few weeks. It just says this, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Up! So as you make your decisions and you face your fears in 2019, and it was wonderful to have Alex mention fears last week as he preached and anger. 
I want to ask you how much of your decision-making this year will be focused and determined by up. Uh, Perhaps as you face trial this year and sickness and, and trauma and loss, will your primary identity be under threat or just a secondary one? If you lose your job or your home or your money or a loved one, will your primary identity go with that or just a secondary one? Will you be so focused up that you can go through anything because Jesus is going nowhere? If uh, perhaps a more positive challenge comes your way in 2019, maybe you look at your giving or your involvement in church. Maybe you look at your human relationships. Maybe you get a new job or a new home. Maybe your parenting and grandparenting strategies come up for review this year. How will you get anything at all right if you're not looking up? If your decisions, every single one of them, is not made in the context of up, you will get it wrong. How a Christian thinks and what a Christian does are intimately bound up with one another, just as who we are and what we do is intimately bound up with one another. Now, there's another reason uh, to call this series up. Verse 6 says, it, that is our hope, the noun, the thing, is bearing fruit and increasing. And increase in the original language, the original Greek of the New Testament, means to grow up. That's what the word means. Uh, This word increase was used of plants as they grew up and reached maturity. It was used of, of children as they reached adolescence and grew up. It was used of of whole cities and populations as they thrived socioeconomically, and it was used of single, individual, personal, quiet, individual, faithful transformation as they grew in Christ in their hearts. The book of Colossians is all about how we grow up and become a church together that grows up. And I think in the context of church growth, this word up is really important. When we talk of church growth, if we don't modify the concept of growth with the concept of of up, everyone will think that I'm just on about getting bigger. Bigger budgets, bigger congregations, bigger buildings, bigger everything, bigger staff. Uh, But a church that, that grows in Christ doesn't just get bigger does get bigger because Jesus is attractive, but it also gets upper. This is about a church that that, that grows together in maturity and not just size. It becomes more mature, more focused, more more close to, to heaven, more up. Does anyone remember that Seinfeld sketch from the 90s? With kids, he said, they never say wait. They always say when a child wants you to wait, they always say, wait up. Uh, when you're little, of course, everything is up. Your whole life is, is all about up. Everything is. Uh, they don't say hold. They say, hold up. Wait up. Shut up. You make a mess. Mom, I'll clean up. Please, just let me stay. Up. Everything's about up as a, as a kid, isn't it? Parents, of course, everything is the complete opposite. Just calm down. <laughs> Slow down. Sit down. Put that down. <laughs> up. 
It's an image of maturity. It's a lovely child sort of word, uh, reaching adolescence, adolescence reaching adulthood. It's a lovely word. Of, uh, it's very organic, isn't it? It's about this desire to be up. A child wants to grow up, just wants to stay up, grow up, be up, sit up, do all of these things. Um, because it's natural to want to grow. It's a natural, organic image that Paul uses here. Hence, uh, the image of the tree on the, the front cover of the bulletin. Something in nature, I think, that Paul is tapping into here, that things that grow often reproduce yet more growth. As things grow up and reach fruition, they reproduce. And that's why here, having talked about grow up, he he now talks about bearing fruit, he says right here. Uh, What is your fruit? What does a fruitful year look like to you? If you reach a new level of Christian maturity, what fruit will you manifest? Uh, Will it be more uh, forgiveness as old grudges become secondary? Uh, Will it be less interest in having your own way as other people become primary? Will it be freedom from addiction from you? Will an old pattern of behavior be broken? Will the works of the flesh be crucified this year as you grow up? Paul says in verse 9 that one of the key ways in which maturity manifests is the clarity of your mind, the ability to think straight, the ability to think properly, the ability to think uply. Set your minds on things above. Verse 9, he says, with knowledge of his will spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's the same thing three times. Remember, when we see this in Scripture, when we see a word repeated, it's not a mistake. It's an amplification. Here, he amplifies the amplification. It's a big point. Grow up. Know up. Be more spiritually wise. Be more understanding. A trio of synonyms. And note really closely, it's why I do want you to have the lively word of God open in front of you to see the nuances and subtleties and majesty of the Holy Word. It's not a command. Grow up. Not an imperative. Not a finger wag. Not a rule. Not a harangue. Go and do it. But a hope. Verse 9 says, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, it is going to happen to you. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, you are going to respond. It is a constant surprise to me that in our churches, many don't respond. They're so happy, so willing to live with such little knowledge and such an absence of wisdom and such a lack of understanding. But it is no surprise to me that when they do live that way, Life goes wrong. They fail to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord because they're immature. Here's some good news. Paul does not say grow up. He says, I'm praying for you so that you grow up. That's ministry. Verse 12, he says, the father, just in case you're starting to get a wobble on and you're thinking, hang on a minute, this whole sermon about spiritual maturity, I'm not very good, maybe God doesn't love me. He says, well, he says um, just earlier, uh, I think in verse 10, that God's pleased with you. And in verse 12, he says, the father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's not talking about getting saved. You already are. That's why you're a saint. He's talking about growing up. The work is done. The inheritance is inherited. The ID has changed. Now live it out, says Paul. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness where we were before, picked up, moved, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son where you are now, verse 14, in whom we have right now redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, this word transferred is another organic image. It really means transplanted. That's what the original Greek word means. And transplanted into the light is what Paul says. And if you think about plants, you'll know, won't you, that plants do not grow in the dark. Fungus does. Rot grows in the dark and decay. Athlete's foot, fungal toe, big mushrooms. That's what grows in the dark in a teenage sneaker, don't they? Rot and decay happens in the dark. Growth happens in the light. Last fall, Hannah, our daughter, collected a whole bag of acorns. And uh, she put them in the garage. And after a few weeks in this sort of plastic trash bag, they started to rot. And I said, Hannah, we've got to get these acorns out of here. They're going off. And uh, they're going a bit manky. That's an English word, um, I think, derived from Manchester, of all places. <laughs> it just means nasty. I don't know how... English language is a marvellous thing, isn't it? Um, she didn't want to let go, though, of these acorns that she'd spent a whole afternoon gathering. Uh, and so they stayed there, and they got worse. And eventually, uh, we eventually took them out into the forest and sort of scattered and buried a few all round and about. And some of the acorns were too far gone. Some of them were just too decomposed to have any real hope of, of, of growing. But some of them will make it. Some of those acorns that we planted will grow when we go out there in May. Some of them will be one or two little tiny oak tree shoots just sticking out of the forest floor. And uh, like those seeds, those acorns, we have been delivered out of darkness and decay and rot and fungus and that bag where we didn't belong and we have been transplanted into the light where we belong where we can grow that's the image that paul uses here and transplanted to dig into it a bit further still is actually a very negative word what it means really is to be carried away or seduced and i think you know of those poor acorns in the bag maybe maybe they were quite comfortable where they were maybe their tiny little acorn brains were disturbed by the move. You know, poor things. It, being transplanted is, is traumatic sometimes. Uh, transplanted in the uh, original Greek can be used for someone who was removed from high office, like an impeachment. People don't like to be impeached. They resist being impeached. It's not nice to be impeached. This very negative word, transplant, can even be used for someone who is departed from life it means dead is what the word means extraordinary isn't it to use such a negative word as death to describe something as beautiful as life why do that why use such a negative word as death for something as good as life two reasons and we finish with them the first is christ's death his transfer or transplantation of himself from the kingdom of light and life where he belongs into the kingdom of, of death and darkness on the cross such that we could exchange places with him and take up his place in light and life is one reason to use this word to start us thinking about the cross and Christ crucified. But the second reason, I believe, to introduce this motif of death 
into a passage to do with light is the need for your own. The need for your own death. You enter this new life in Christ by dying to your old one. That old ID, whatever it was that was primarily defining who you are, if it was not Jesus Christ, needs to die, needs to be crucified, needs to be buried, needs to be put away. You cannot grow until your old life has been buried with Christ and raised again. And in the gospel reading, Jesus says, John 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Christ is calling you to lay down your old life. He's calling you up to become a church that grows in Christ. Let's pray. God, please call us together, we ask, to lay down our old identities and to take up a new one in you. And having been transferred into the kingdom of light, having become saints by your work alone, having inherited that which is already stored up or laid up for us in heaven, would you help us to be more focused up in the way that we live as saints? In the name of Jesus. Amen.